We're so glad and honored that you're all here today and those that are watching from home and wherever, just don't close your eyes when we're praying and driving and, you know, can cause some uh, situations on the road. But we're so glad that you're here and we're honored that you're with us and, and um, we're going to just continue with our, our service. We have a, a few things going on today and we have uh, missionaries and they're going to introduce themselves today, Troy and Lisa Tabor, and they're going to uh, come up and they're going to just tell us a little bit about their story and then he's going to bring the word of God. And so why don't you come on up and, and take it away? Yeah, give a round. Of course we round. You can do better than that, church. Come on. Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. Let me just real quick introduce my wife, Lisa. Lisa, you want to say hello? Good it's great to be here with you this morning. We have uh, memories going back quite a way it's, uh, with your church. We have been missionaries in Cambodia for 28 years now, and you guys have supported us since we first went out. We really appreciate your partnership, your uh, help in all that we do. We couldn't be there without you. We couldn't do what we do without you. Uh, and it's great to be here. Cambodia is not a very large country. It's only about the size of the state of Oklahoma. We've got about 16 million to 17 million people who live there. And it's a country that has just seen incredible change and tragedy over the last 50 years. Everything from the Civil War to the Vietnam War spilling over its borders to the Khmer Rouge, a radical communist group that committed genocide in Cambodia during a three-year reign, they killed one quarter of the population of the country. Uh, then following that up with another 20 years of civil war that led, went all the way up until about the year 2000. And since 2000, we've had, haven't had the out-and-out -out fighting and warfare, but we've had change at a pace that experts will tell you is just as traumatic as something like a war. Things where we went from you know, maybe two paved roads in the country, no, no real telephone service. When we first went in 94, we lived three hours from the nearest telephone and it only worked occasionally. Um, you know, we had to travel between uh, cities and armed escorted convoys. There were maybe two or three restaurants in the capital you could trust that you wouldn't get food poisoning at, uh, things like that. To today, we wake up, we've got great cell phone coverage all over the country. We've got, uh, I can go out on my balcony uh, of a, we live on a seventh floor of a 14 floor high rise. And I can go out on my balcony and look out over the new mall a few blocks away that has the IMAX theater and the Krispy Kreme donut shop. And uh, you know, things, changes that are just incredible that have taken place in an incredibly short <laughs> amount of time. Literally you go away for, uh, you know, a month or two, you come back, things have changed. It is an incredibly fast pace of change that never lets you, people who are struggling to recover, have a period of peace and stability to do that. So you had 30 years of war and genocide followed by 20 years of just incredible change. So that leaves you today with over 47% of the population with po unresolved post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, you might know somebody who was involved in the wars in Afghanistan or Iraq that, that has struggled with PTSD. Now imagine that every other person you meet on the street has that, and you start to see where we're at in Cambodia. We have over 40% with major anxiety disorders, 11% uh, with clinical depression, and you could go on and on and on. The problems there are, there's no shortage of problems or difficulties, and they aren't things that are going to be fixed by a new mall being built. 
They're not going to be fixed by having better utilities. They're not going to be fixed by having an ice cream shop. It's not going to happen. Those aren't problems that are fixed in the natural. Those are problems that can only be addressed in the supernatural. But we do serve a God who works in the supernatural. Amen? Yes. God has done incredible things during the time we've been there. When we first arrived in 1994, there were only about 140 churches in the entire country. That's, uh, not, that's not Assemblies of God churches. That's evangelical churches. Churches that basically believe the same way you and I do, that the Bible is God's word from cover to cover, that Jesus uh, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, so that through faith in him, we could have eternal life, right? You, you guys get that. Evangelical, uh, basic evangelical churches, about uh, 140 in 1994. Today, there are almost 4,000 churches in Cambodia. Uh, you know, do you, get, do you get that kind of a change? That's huge. That's something we never dreamed we'd see uh, during the time we'd be working in Cambodia. But that doesn't mean the job is done. Far from it. That still leaves more than 95% of the population as Buddhist. That still leaves less than 2% Christian. That still leaves great areas of the country that have had no gospel witness, uh, no adequate gospel witness. Some areas where people have never even heard the name of Jesus still. Um, and the, we've worked in a number of different areas since we first arrived in Cambodia. We began running an orphanage of about 120 kids, ranging in age from newborns all the way up to about 20 years old. We've done church planting on an island in the middle of the Mekong River. We've done media ministries and in just about every area you can think of, everything from full-length evangelistic films that have been released in theaters to TV and radio programs to distance education programs for Bible schools, training for pastors, you name it, we've probably done it. But we've got a new opportunity that's opening up to us when we go back in April. We're planning to be back in the field in about four months. And uh, one of the things that we're really excited about is a new opportunity we have working uh, in a new area, in a new church plant, in a place called Gait. Uh A few years ago, the, the Cambodian Assemblies of God leadership came to us and said, we, we have a vision, we have a goal to see a strong Cambodian church, Assembly of God church in each one of our provincial capitals. We have 25 provinces in Cambodia and less than half of them have Assemblies of God churches right now. And they said, we wanna see one in every one. We said, hey, we can believe, we believe with you. We, we wanna see that too. Uh, how are you gonna make that happen? And they said, we don't know. That's why we came to you. <laughs> so we said, okay, well, great. Let's pray together about it and see what happens. So we prayed with them. We uh, uh, you know, sought God's direction. And we felt God was leading us to partner together with a couple other missionary units to go to a place on the coast in Cambodia that has never had an Assemblies of God work, has almost no church exposure at all. Um, it's uh, uh, got a heavy Muslim population as well as the Buddhist population. But uh, God is leading us to help start a church in that area. And I wanna show you a short video that gives you a little picture of the people who are there and, uh, and the area. So let's go ahead and roll that video and then we'll pick it back up afterwards. Gaia is the provincial capital on Cambodia's southern coast. Once a glamorous resort for Cambodia's rich and famous, Gaia still bears the scars of the Khmer Rouge years and is still recovering from decades of war and violence. 95% of the Cambodian population of Gaik is Buddhist. The town is made up of fishermen, farmers, children, teenagers, and adults. Almost all of them have never had the chance to know Jesus. But 
God has great things in store for that area, and it is exciting to be a part of that. It, for us, it feels almost like we're starting over again, not in a bad way, but in a good way, going back to what God called us there for in the first place. Um, you know, God called us to Cambodia to take the gospel to people who had never heard, to places where it had never been, uh, people who had never been reached. And it's not that we haven't been doing that over the last 28 years, we have, but going back to uh, church planting in a new area uh, in a very hands-on way is, is it, it feels like starting over in, in a good way. I mean, it's, 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 it's exciting to us because this is at the heart of what God has called us there to do. And how we respond to the call of God is really an important thing, not just for us as missionaries, not just for pastors, but for each one of us because God has called each one of us and has a plan for each one of us, and how we respond to that call is an important part of our lives with Christ. So that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about this morning is, is God's call. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah is a prophet that's only mentioned one time outside of the book that, that bears his name, um, and that was in 2 Kings chapter 14. Jonah lived right on the border between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. If you remember your Bible history, the, the people of Israel came out of uh, Egypt, came, moved into the promised land. They had kings, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and then after King Solomon, the kingdom split in two. And you had the northern kingdom of Israel with ten tribes that had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. There wasn't a single good king in the entire bunch. Then you had the southern kingdom of Judah with two tribes that kind of would go back and forth between good kings and bad kings. So Jonah lived on the border right between the north and the south kingdoms. And he, in 2 Kings chapter 14, he prophesied to the king of the northern kingdom of Israel that they were going to recapture some area that had been claimed, some territory that had been uh, eaten up by their enemies around them, right? And, and it actually came to pass and it happened. And now I, I think of that as kind of, uh, not odd isn't the right word, but typically when I think of an Old Testament prophet, I think of them talking about, hey, God's going to judge you. This is going to happen. This bad thing is going to happen. Uh, but this is God saying, I'm going to do something good for you, regardless of what you do. I'm going to do good to you. I'm going to restore some of your land. And it happens. So, you know, you've got the king of Israel who has a prophet who's prophesied good. And it came to pass. So he's not being hunted down by the king. So many times we see the prophets in the Old Testament being hunted by the king and they're in hiding. That was not Jonah. Jonah was in good standing with the king and with the country. He had prophesied good and it came to pass. So he's living there on the border between these two kingdoms. And it comes to chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Jonah. And it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, Nineveh was a powerful, strong city at the time. It was, it was known for its ruthlessness and its violence. 
If they were going to come and attack your area, your city, you could pretty much guarantee your life was over. Because they would not only come in and kill most of the people, but if you survived the attack, if you, if you weren't killed outright, they would take you and forcibly move you to another area that they controlled and resettle you there. They would basically turn you into a refugee. So if they were coming after your town, your life as you knew it was over. So they were ruthless, they were cruel, and it says something interesting here. It says that their evil had come up before me, is what God says. Their evil has come up before me. There's only one other place really in the Bible where, where it uses that kind of language in describing a city, and that's when it's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. So the evil of this place, not only are they cruel, not only are they violent, but the evil in this place is so great that it's on par with Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a bad place. And God's telling Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go there and tell them what I tell you to say. And Jonah immediately turns and goes 180 degrees in the opposite direction as far and as fast as he can. He goes to the coast to Joppa from where he lives and takes off on a ship to a place called Tarshish. Now, if you looked at a map in the Bible, you'd see that... Uh, uh, the kingdom of Israel's here, Judah's here, here's the Mediterranean Sea, and then you've got Joppa right there on the coast, you've got where Jonah lived right here. Over this way, about 500 miles is, is, is uh, uh, Nineveh. Tarshish is way that way on the Mediterranean Sea, all the way out by Spain, literally off most of the maps in the, old, in the back of your Bible. It's literally going as far away as is humanly possible at that time, as far away to the ends of the earth as he could to get away from this because he didn't want to have anything to do with taking this message from God to Joppa. How many of you guys have heard the story of Jonah before? There's two people in the back over there who've heard the story of Jonah. Anybody else? Okay, you guys heard the story of Jonah. Good. So... Uh, Jonah, you know, he gets on this ship in Joppa to go, and as the ship sets out on the Mediterranean Sea, God brings a storm up to stop the ship from moving forward. And this is a major, major storm. It's not just a, you know, quick little rain squall or something like this. It is a major storm. And the way I know that is because these guys who were on this ship, these sailors, made their living on the Mediterranean Sea. It wasn't their first day out there. It wasn't like they just bought a boat and were trying things out. They lived there. They worked there. They were regularly out on the ocean there, out on the sea. And they were there during storms, during calm, you name it. They've been in it. And when this storm comes up, this storm is so severe that all of these sailors on the ship start to call out to their gods to see who's behind it. In other words, this storm was so severe that these sailors who grew up on the, on the sea said, this is beyond a normal thing. There's something supernatural behind this. It's that bad. This was a serious, serious storm. And they were calling out to all their gods. Now, I love these sailors in the story because they remind me of the people of Cambodia. You see, Cambodia is mostly Buddhist, but they've incorporated a lot of animistic practices in there as well. And animism is, is the belief that, that there's, uh, you know, in that tree over there, there's a spirit that lives in that tree or in that forest or on that hill. And that spirit controls an area, a uh, geographical area, that you need to appease that spirit if you're going to do anything in that area or that spirit will harm you. 
And so you go around Cambodia, you drive down the road, there'll be different places, different shrines that you, you, if you're traveling in that area, you're supposed to stop at and make an offering at these shrines to the spirit of that area, of that territory, or you'll be harmed in your trip. And so uh, that's kind of where these sailors are at. They have this massive storm come up and they say there's, there's got to be a God behind it that we haven't appeased that somewhere somebody failed to do what they were supposed to do. And so they're calling out to their gods to see who's behind it. And they're not getting any answers. And so the, the captain of the ship says, well, let's cast lots to figure out which God it is, which person it is who can tell us what the answer is. And so they cast lots, and the lot falls to Jonah. And the captain goes to see Jonah. And he says, Jonah, um, I know when you got on the ship, you told us you were running from your God. Um, well, we were just kind of wondering, um, what God is it that you serve? And, and I'm sure he was hoping... The captain was hoping to hear something like, well, I serve the god of Joppa. Because if, they, if he's serving the god of Joppa, the farther away they get from Joppa, the less authority that god has and the storm will, you know, settle down or whatever. I, that's, that's, that's probably what the captain was hoping. But that's not what Jonah says. Jonah says, well, yeah, I, I, I serve the god who created all the heavens, all the sky, all the earth, all the seas, who created it all. And the captain's kind of like, you... You serve who? You serve the God who created everything and you brought that on my ship? Seriously? And he's like, what can we do, Jonah, to stop this then? We cannot run it, obviously. What can we do to appease your God? He says, well, you can throw me overboard. And this is why I love these sailors because they're like, hey, 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 hold on. Even we know it's wrong to kill people. We're not going to do that. Right? So they, they're like, we're not going to throw you overboard. So they try to save Jonah. They try to row him to shore to put him off on shore where it's safe. I mean, do you get the irony of this? Here's these sailors who are heathen idol worshipers who are risking their lives to save the guy who put them in danger in the first place. Incredible. But it doesn't work. They can't get to shore. They end up back on the boat. They're standing on the back of the boat there, and, and, and they're like, Jonah, you know, I, we tried everything we could. We, we, we did everything we could, Jonah. We, we're sorry about this. And, and God, you know we tried to save him, so don't hold this against us, God. And they take Jonah and they throw him overboard. And the storm stops. Now, I can tell you, if I'm on the back of that boat, and there's a storm that's so severe, I'm convinced it's supernatural in nature. I'm going to be scared. I, I, I don't want to drown. I don't want to die in a shipwreck. I'd be scared. But if I'm on the back of that boat, I'm scared in the midst of the storm, and then I throw this guy overboard and the storm stops, now I'm terrified. Because up until that point, it's, well, I think it's God. But now there's no question anymore. It is God. This is the hand of God. And he's not the God I've been serving. And these sailors, they see what happens. And they can't believe it. They say, you know, this is amazing. And in verse one, chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Basically, they got right with God right then and there. They said, if this is the God 
that did this, who has power over all the gods we serve, he's the one we want to be right with. And they make vows to God and sacrifices to him and get right with God. That's incredible. An incredible turnaround for these guys. Now, again, picture yourself on the back of this boat. You're there. All this stuff has happened. The storm has come up. You've tried to get save Jonah. You can't. You throw him overboard. The storm stops. You freak out. You, got, you offer prayers to God. You offer sacrifice to make vows to God. You're done, and you're feeling some peace. Blue sky. Bird flies by. You're breathing a sigh of relief. And someone, where one of the guys on the boat is like, hey, did anybody see what happened to Jonah? And I've got this picture in my mind of them looking over the edge of the boat, and there's Jonah treading water, you know, next to the boat. And they say, hey, Jonah! And just about that time, a big fish comes up and swallows Jonah. Now, I grew up watching uh, Pinocchio, and I heard they're making a Pinocchio remake, I don't know. But uh, any of you ever seen the old Pinocchio Disney movie? Or, or maybe read like one of the Disney books that has the illustrations from it. You know, Pinocchio at one point gets swallowed by a whale and he's in this big cavernous room where you can see the ribs of the, of the, of the, of the whale and, and, the, and, and there's water and there's like a, a shack in there floating with a little porch on it and Geppetto's sitting there fishing off the end of the, uh, of the porch on the shack and there's a cat, there's even a, a, a goldfish in a bowl. You guys remember that? Okay, this was nothing like that, okay? I mean, imagine being swallowed by a whale, by a fish of some kind, and, and, and it would be absolutely pitch black. No light whatsoever. Absolutely pitch black. You'd feel the pressures as the fish swims through the ocean and would go down and up. You'd feel the pressures contracting and pressing against you and letting up and, and, and all of these things happening. The, the smells that would be there, of the rotting uh, uh, food inside of the, the whale's stomach, the burning of the acid from the, from the stomach on your eyes and in your lungs and, and on your skin, uh, and, and, the, and the muscles contracting around you as, as the stomach muscles would need this food and, and press against you, up all up against you. There's no space. It would be horrible. I can't imagine a worse place to be. I mean, it's literally a hell on earth. And the Bible says that Jonah is swallowed up and he's in the belly of the whale for three days and then he prays. Now, did you catch what I just said? He's in there for three days and then he prays. I'm sorry, it wouldn't take me three days to pray. As soon as that fish is starting to swallow me, I'd be praying. You know, I don't need three days of convincing. I'm right, I'm good to go. God, I'm sorry. <laughs> But that's not Jonah. Jonah's in there for three days. That's how stubborn he is. That's how fixed he is on running from God's call that he's in there for three days refusing to do a thing other than sit there and suffer. And then after three days, he finally prays. And then when he does pray, it's not amazing what he prays. It's amazing what he doesn't pray. His prayer is recorded in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and we're not going to take the time to read that right now, but, but if you go back and look, you'll see that he, he, said, he basically says, God, where can I go from your presence? You're in the highest of heights. You're in the deep, dark of depth of the sea. There's no place I can run from your presence. You're everywhere, God. But never once does he say, I'm sorry. Never once does he say, God, forgive me for what I did. Never once does he say, God, I should have gone. I should have done what you said. Never once does he say, God, if you give me a second chance, I'll do it. None of that. Unbelievable. 
that hardness of heart, that bitterness, that being set against God's will in this. It's, it's incredible. But even in the midst of that, we serve a God of amazing grace. And God, in the midst of all that, still decides to give Jonah a second chance. Look at it in chapter 2, verse 10. It says, And then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. He gave Jonah a second chance at life. Now, some people say, well, Troy, this is a silly story. Nobody can live for three days in the belly of a whale. No, it'd be a miracle for them to do that. Some people say, well, he died, and then when he was vomited out, God miraculously brought him back to life. Maybe, I don't know. But the point isn't how that all happened. The point is that after three days, God miraculously gave him a second chance. No matter how God brought that about, after three days, God gives Jonah a second chance. And the fish spits him out on dry land. Then it goes on and says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Not only did God give Jonah a second chance at life, he gave him a second chance to do what God had called him to do. And this time, Jonah goes. But it's the most half-hearted effort I've ever seen. It is, he, Jonah does the absolute bare minimum he can do and still obey God's call. I, it's incredible. He goes there. Look at what he does. He goes to Nineveh. He's there for three days traveling throughout the city because it's a big city. He takes him three days to go throughout it. He goes throughout this entire city for three days doing the bare minimum, giving an eight-word sermon the entire time. And here's the eight words. It's recorded in chapter 3, verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. He's basically walking around saying, 40 days and you're all dead. 40 days and it's over. You're going to be destroyed. In 40 days, you're dead. That's it. He never tells them why. He never tells them who's mad at him. He never tells them what they can do about it. He doesn't say repent. He doesn't say anything other than 40 days and you're dead. Unbelievable. But God takes his half-hearted effort this eight-word sermon that doesn't even mention God in it and uses it to bring about the greatest turnaround recorded in the Bible. This city that was on a par with Sodom and Gomorrah. This city turns around completely to seek God. He says that when the people heard Jonah that they put on sackcloth and ashes, a sign of repenting. And, and they fasted and prayed and sought God. It says when the king heard Jonah, the king put on sackcloth and ashes and repented and, and fasted and prayed. And then this is one of my favorite parts in the book. And this, there's lots of good parts in the story. But the king then tells the people, okay, you've got ashes and fasting, praying, Ashes and sackcloth, great. I've done that. Go home and make sure your cows and your donkeys and your livestock put on sackcloth and ashes and fast and pray. I mean, I've never seen anything like that or heard of anything like that. I mean, you guys, I'm sure your pastor is a good pastor and, and, and he's, you guys have had God move in the service before. 
I, but I'm betting any, I, I bet anything, I'll bet any one of you, that he's never, ever, at the end of a service, at the end of a move of God, said, okay, God's really been here with us. Make sure you go home now and help your dog to repent. No, that doesn't happen, right? But, but it, it's kind of ridiculous. But you've got to remember, what did Jonah tell them? He told them absolutely nothing. They, they are not sure what to do. They just want to be right with God. And so they're doing everything, even going to the extent of looking ridiculous, to get right with God because they want to, they want to, they, they want to avoid this. And so they say, hey, we don't care. Even if it makes us look silly, who knows? It could be something else. We're going to do everything we can to show God that we're serious about this. Even to the point of looking ridiculous and having our animals repent. That's an incredible, incredible turnaround. That's just absolutely amazing. I can tell you, going to, to this new city in Cambodia, Kai, and, and doing this church planting work, we're excited about it. We've, we've had the opportunity to visit there many times, uh, even before we left to come back here to the U.S. to raise our support. We were there uh, fairly regularly before the pandemic broke out. And we could just see God's hand lining things up and, and, and with us in making connections and, and things. And it's, it was, it's exciting. And, but if we see half of the city, a quarter of the city, turn around like this, I, I, I'll tell you, you'll find me dancing in the streets in Guyton. I'd be so excited. Yeah. I mean, that'd be incredible. I'd be thrilled. So Jonah had to be pretty pumped about this turnaround in Nineveh, right? No. Look at what it says in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 1. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Unbelievable. God had forgiven them. He had said back in, in the last chapter, we didn't read it, but in chapter 3, verse 10, it says that he, he, he saw the people's repentance and relented and didn't bring on them the disaster that he was going to. And Jonah, in the midst of all this, he's mad because they repented and God forgave them. Unbelievable. He goes on and he says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Unbelievable. He's basically saying, God, how dare you save them? We're your people. We're your chosen people. Israel, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're the ones who are the people of God, not those heathens. They don't deserve it. They've been persecuting us. God, kill them. Save us. We're entitled. This is, we, we deserve this, not them. He's basically being a bigot. He's come to a place where he feels entitled to what God has done for him. Not grateful, nothing else. He's entitled to it. This is ours and nobody else's. How dare they? Unbelievable attitude. And then he takes it one step further and becomes the first drama queen in history by saying, God, just kill me. I'd rather die than live. <laughs> but we serve a God of incredible grace. 
And God doesn't give up on Jonah either. God decides to give Jonah one more chance. He says, I'm going to try to teach him one more time. And so Jonah, in his anger, goes out of the city, goes down the road a little bit, sits down, puts up a little lean-to kind of thing to get a little bit of shade, but he can still see the city from where he's at. And he says, okay, God, I'm going to sit here until you destroy that city like you said you were going to. And so he sits there to wait to see if God will destroy the city. And God sends and miraculously has this vine grow up the side of the uh, lean-to that he's put up and come out over and provide some extra shade for him from the sun. Now, I, I, I think we can all be in agreement here that if we went outside here and sat down out by the road and had a little lean-to thing and a vine in the matter of, you know, half hour suddenly grows up and comes over and covers us providing shade, I think we can all agree that's God, right? I mean, it wasn't like miracle grow or anything like that. It's God. It's obvious it's God. And it was obvious to Jonah it was God. And it's kind of funny because when this happens, when this vine comes up and provides him a shade, the way the Bible puts it, it says Jonah was pleased about the shade and the vine. But you've got to put that in context. That sounds nice, but you've got to put it in context of his attitude and everything else that's happened and everything that's going to happen. Basically what he's saying is, that's right, God, I deserve the vine. I deserve the shade. Now get on with it and kill him. Again, he's got his entitlement mentality going. He's like, yeah, this is what I deserve. You should have done this in the first place. God, I shouldn't have had to wait and ask for shade. You should have been providing for me. And get, go, go on and kill him. Then the sun goes down and God says, okay, here comes the lesson, Jonah. And he sends a worm to eat the vine. So that in the morning when the sun comes up and the wind starts to blow, the vine is dead and it falls over. And again, it says Jonah was angry about the vine and he goes into another one of these rants where he says, God, just kill me now. Because I have no shade. And God, the book of Jonah ends in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, with God having one last conversation with Jonah. Jonah's still angry about everything. He's angry that, these, that the Ninevites haven't been destroyed yet. He's angry that the vine's gone. He's angry. And God says to him, Jonah, you know, you're more angry about the loss of shade and comfort from that vine than you were about the 120,000 people who were lost and dying and going to hell. And the story ends. The Bible doesn't tell us what Jonah did or how he responded to that. But it's an amazing contrast. I, I can't help but be amazed of the contrast between Jonah on the one hand, Jonah who's obsessed with his with self, with comfort, with its convenience, who's become apathetic and even antagonistic to those around him, running from God and grudgingly complying and doing the bare minimum only when he has to. And on the other hand, you have the sailors and the people of Nineveh who've never had a relationship with God, never had the opportunity but they're willing to respond and go above and beyond, even to the point of looking ridiculous at just the barest word of God 
and appearance of God in their lives. We have a good friend in uh, Cambodia, a man named Samat. And Samat was uh, uh, just a teenager when we first met him. He was actually one of the kids in our orphanage in Kampong Cham, Cambodia, uh, when we first arrived there in 1994. He'd been there for a few years. See, he had grown up in this village, and his parents had died when he was uh, uh, very young, and, and, and the neighbor lady had taken him in and was uh, caring for him uh, because there really wasn't anything else. The Civil War was going on. It wasn't safe. There wasn't really anything else around. So she was trying to help him, but she, was, she didn't have anything herself, really, and um, a short time later, the government built an orphanage in the provincial capital, and they allowed him to come live at the orphanage. And this was a big step up for him. The situation where he was with this lady was not good. Uh, she was pretty destitute, and so he came into the orphanage where now he had regular food. It wasn't much, but he had some food. He had uh, you know, some clothes, opportunity to go to a school. They were just starting schools back up. Um, so it was an improvement. But he wasn't there very long before he started having some health problems, some difficulties. He had, he had problems keeping up with the other kids. And he'd get out of breath and things, and, and, and he'd start to have these chest pains, especially when he'd lay down. And it came to the point where he couldn't lay down flat at night on a bed anymore. They had to prop his bed up at a 45-degree angle, and he'd like lean on that when he'd go to sleep. Because if he laid flat, it was too painful. Um, and uh, there was just obviously something wrong. But there was no medical facilities around. This was, the Civil War was still going on. There was no hospital or anything to take him to. But the orphanage staff took him to something they, that we call a grutier. A grutier is, is kind of like um, a cross between a traditional healer and a witch doctor. They use some herbal kind of things, but then also some sorcery kind of stuff as well. And, and so they took him to this grutier and, and explained what was going on. And this guy says to him, well, you live at the orphanage, right? And he says, yeah, I do. I live at the orphanage. I said, okay, and you go to the school that's over there? He says, yes, that's the school I go to. He says, well, so you walk down this road to get there? Yeah, I do. Well, have you ever had to go to the bathroom on your way to or from school? Yeah. And so what'd you do? Well, I just went, you know. I, so did you, have you ever urinated on that tree on the, this corner, the big tree that's there? And he's like, well, Yeah. He says, well, there's an evil spirit that lives in that tree, and you've offended that evil spirit, and that's why this has happened. I'm not kidding. This is literally what they told him. He said, you've offended this evil spirit that lives in that tree by urinating on it, and, and you need to appease that spirit to, to stop having these problems. And so he explained to this orphanage worker and, and Samad how they could offer a chicken to this spirit that lives in this tree, and so they did. They went and got a chicken, and they went and they offered this chicken uh, to the spirit in this tree, and you know, if you've ever been around somebody with a chronic health problem, or maybe you've had one yourself, you know you have good days and bad days, right? And, and so after they offered this chicken, they had a good day. So he said, oh, it must have worked. But then it wasn't long, and he started having bad days again. And so, well, it must not have worked very well, and so we need to do something else. And so they'd go and they'd offer something else to, the, to, the, to that tree, or they would try to find other spirits that maybe he had offended and offer things to them, and nothing was really working. He's just getting worse and worse. And about that time, uh, the government asked the Assemblies of God to take over running that orphanage. And a missionary moved in there and uh, started to run the orphanage, and they also started to do a church service in the, in the town where the orphanage was. And in the morning, they would have a, ch a church service on Sunday. And in the afternoon on Sunday, they would then have 
English language classes where they use the Bible to teach English. And so Samat and some of the older boys started going to church services and, and the English lessons. Not because they really wanted to learn the Bible or English or anything like that, but because on Sunday mornings is when the orphanage staff would give the kids at the orphanage chores to do around the orphanage, and if they went to church, they didn't have to do the chores. So they were good teenagers, wanted to avoid their chores, and, and they went to church instead. But if you're going to church, you're going to be there, and you're going to hear things. And if you hear it every week, you start to listen. And Sama started to find that as he listened, he started to believe. And it wasn't long before he became a Christian and asked Jesus into his heart, and, be, and he got himself a Bible. He started getting involved in, in the outreaches that the church was doing to the people around them. Uh, it was just exciting. He started, his life started to change in some really great ways. But he still had these health problems. And about that time, the, the missionary who was there decided to bring in a health care team from the U.S. to check out the kids. Civil War had been going on there for many, many years. There hadn't been a doctor or, or anything like that around. So... They, this team of doctors and nurses from Iowa came to Cambodia, to where the orphanage was. They checked all the kids in the orphanage, and they did a clinic for the people in the community as well. And so they were there for about a week, and, and this nurse who was there with them checked Samat. She listened to his heart, and she said, there's, there's something wrong. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. So they took him down to the capital. Um, and again, there wasn't much medical there, but it was better than where we were at at the orphanage there, took him down to the capital and she was able to get some basic tests. They had an EKG done and they had some chest x-rays. And so when she left to go back to, to the US, she took these results from the EKG and the chest x-ray with her and showed them to a cardiologist back in Des Moines, Iowa. And he took a look at him and he said, wow, this, this is serious. This guy's gonna die if he doesn't have something done. He needs heart valve replacement and he needs to have it right away. I'm surprised he's still alive right now. So she started doing some checking and calling, and she was able to get the hospital to donate all its services, the doctor to donate his services, airlines to donate tickets, and within a few months, Samat was on a plane flying to America to have heart valve replacement surgery at no cost to anyone. It's amazing uh, that she got that done. He got back there. Des Moines has a large Cambodian community there, and there's a Cambodian church uh, in, in the city there. and. Uh, uh, there was a couple at the church who had no kids of their own that they said, we'll put some up while he's here. So he stayed with them during the three months he was in the States getting ready for the surgery when he had the surgery and while he was recovering. And uh, they just really formed a, a, a very close bond with him and, and really cared about him a lot. And about a week or two before he was scheduled to go back to Cambodia, they brought him in and sat him down in the kitchen and said, you know, we wanted to talk to you for a minute, Samat. Um, We've been talking and thinking about it, and we really care about you. We, we love you. We want what's best for you, and we'd like to adopt you. We want to make you a part of our family. We want you to have a home, a family. You, you have a place to live. You'll have plenty of food. You'll have health care for the ongoing treatment for your heart condition. You'll have uh, good education, all the opportunities. You want to go back to the middle of the war or any of that. What do you say? And Samat said, well... I appreciate what you're offering me and what you're suggesting, but God's called me to be a pastor in Cambodia and I want to go back there to tell people about Jesus. And he left it all. Everything any Cambodian at that time would have wanted. He left it all. He left the family, a home, education, 
healthcare, food, security, safety, all of it, to go back into the middle of a civil war, back into the middle of an orphanage, an institution, back into uncertainty and unknowing because he wanted to follow the call of God. He went back, he ended up finishing high school, went to the Bible school, our Bible school in Cambodia, graduated from there, planted a church in the capital city, and shortly after that, he had the opportunity to go to Singapore for some more education, went to Singapore, got his master's degree, came back to Cambodia again, uh, planted another church in the capital city, became the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God of Cambodia, ended up, um, then now he is uh, the, uh, uh, he, was, he was the dean of students at our Bible school for a while. He's now the head of what we call Cambodia Global Action. It's kind of like um, uh, Convoy of Hope. There, thank you. It's kind of like Convoy of Hope in Cambodia. It's, it's the Cambodian Assemblies of God's relief and development arm that they try to help out with natural disasters and, and people who are destitute and things like that. So he heads that up now. Uh, just a wonderful guy. He's still pastoring that church. He's married, has four kids of his own. Uh, we work with him just about every week when we're in Cambodia. Wonderful guy. Incredible impact he's had on the country. But none of that was on the table that day when he sat there in Iowa with that family. None of that was in the cards. At that point, it was just you can, you can have everything you ever wanted or you can go back to Cambodia and it just depends on whether or not you're willing to ignore God's call. It's sort of the opposite of what happened with Jonah in one way. Um, Jonah wanted to run from God's call to avoid discomfort. Samat was tempted to abandon God's call to embrace comfort. Uh, Jonah ran from God's call while Samat ran and embraced it. And as a result, Jonah ended up bitter and alone. And Samat gained a family, a ministry, and the joy of being a part of what God is doing in Cambodia. And I think of that, those differences, and I wonder who we're more like. Are we more likely to run to fulfill God's call like Samat did, despite discomfort or sacrifice? Or are we more likely to be like Jonah, running away from the difficult and uncomfortable things God calls us to, and only grudgingly complying when we feel we have no other choice? See, God's call to each one of us. He has a plan and a purpose for each one of us because we're all different. We all have different opportunities. I'll never meet the people you meet each day. I'll never be in the places you're going to be. Your pastor's not going to be in the same places. Even from each one of you to another, even if you're in the same family, you have different opportunities from one another. They're unique to you. And God has called you because of who you are and where you are to use you to build his kingdom in a way that only you have the opportunity to do. And the question becomes, what do you do with that opportunity? Do you run towards that call or away from it? Do you look to be used by God even when it costs you something? 
Or are you more interested in just being comfortable where you're at? Do you feel, do you have an attitude that you're entitled to the things you have? The blessings that God has given you? Or are you grateful for the blessings God has given you and willing to share them on? I know, you know, things are uncertain. Times are difficult. And I, I don't discount that at all. I know it's difficult between COVID and the economy and uh, a culture that's becoming increasingly anti-Christian. And you go on and on and on. There's a lot of uncertainty in our world. And it's all too easy to use that as an excuse for inaction. But if you want to have peace, if you want to have joy in your life, I can tell you how to do that. That goes beyond the circumstances you're in. Jesus spelled it out real clearly, in fact, in Matthew chapter 14, excuse me, chapter 24. He tells this parable of, uh, that we hear called the parable of the talents. You guys might remember this. This is where the, the landowner is going on a trip and he calls three servants. He gives three talents, to, or five talents to one, two talents to one, one talent to the other. He says, I'm going on this trip. You guys invest them. Use them however you want. When I come back, we'll settle up. And when he comes back, the one who had five has earned five more. The one who has two has earned two more. The one who had one and hit it, and he only has the one he started with. You guys remember this story? Again, four people. Four people remember the story. Awesome. <laughs> so he, he's, he comes back. And he settles up. Now, how many of you have heard a sermon on this, this passage before? Okay. When you heard that sermon, was it about the guy with the one talent? Is that where they focused? Most times that's what I've heard. But I don't want to talk about him. I want to just talk just real, real quick about the other two. Because when the other two come back, the one has gained five, had given five, gained five more. The one has given two, has gained two more. Well, let me say this first before I mention, go on. Uh, the one other thing with this one, talents, well, sometimes we think, oh, talent, that's great. I have a talent, I can play the guitar, so I'm going to use it. That's not the kind of talent we're talking about here, okay? This is talents. I mean, that's fine. That's true. If God gives you a, an actual ability, talent kind of a thing, you should use that. But this is a monetary unit. And a talent, I don't know if you realize this, a talent is about $1.6 million. So he called a servant over and gave the servant over $8 million and said, go have fun with this $8 million, use it, invest it, and we'll settle up when I come back. That's incredible. He calls the next guy, here's $3.2 million, go have at it. And even the one who got one, he gave $1.6 million to him. How many of you work a job, have a job? Have you ever had your boss at your job say, hey, I've gotta go you know, out of town for a week, here's a million dollars, Grow the business, and we'll settle up when I come back. I'm guessing nobody. But the amount, but the whole point of this, of this, these talents, it's that this landowner lavishly gave to these servants what they didn't deserve. Not too much, because it says he gave to each one according to their ability. But he gave them a lavish gift of grace to use. Just like God has given us a lavish gift of grace to use. And when these two, who had the five and the two, they come back, they've doubled it. The landowner says to them something interesting. He says, in part, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. 
You want to know how to enter into the joy of God in your life, even in the midst of uncertainty around you? It's to do the thing God has called you to do. When you do that, you will have joy like you have never imagined. You will have peace like no one can understand. All by following God's call. Running from God's call leads to bitterness, being alone, nothing. Look where Jonah ended up. You want to be full? Follow God's call. Even when it doesn't seem wise, even when it seems like it's going to cost you something. You guys are coming into a week of prayer and fasting for the church of what's ahead. I want to challenge you to be, begin right now praying and asking God to show you what he wants you as an individual to do, what he wants you as a church to do. And to not just pray and ask God what he wants you to do, but to pray and ask God what he wants you to do and that God would give you the strength to do the thing he's called you to do. Because you do that, God can do incredible things. You run from God's call, that never ends well. But I want to challenge you to follow God's call. I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just one minute. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you if you're willing to pray that prayer that God would show you the things that he wants you to do, that he would be sensitive to his call, his leading, and that you would be, have the strength to do those things. If you're willing to pray that prayer, in just a minute, I'm going to have you stand up. I want to explain why I'm having you stand up first because I'm not looking to embarrass anybody. I'm not wanting to do anything else with you. I'm not going to have you come up forward or anything like that. You're welcome to do that, of course, at the end of the service if you'd like. But, but when you stand up, you're doing something. You're, you're building an altar in your life. You're building a, a, a monument in your life. It's just like the Old Testament and when you read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when God would meet with them and they would do something, God would do something in their lives, they would build an altar. So that later on, when someone looked at that altar or they looked back at it, they would say, that was the time this happened. Because I guarantee you, if you pray that prayer, God's going to give you opportunities. God is going to bring about opportunities for you to do something for his kingdom. Something that's good, that only you can do. Something that might be a little uncomfortable, a little scary to do. And you're going to need to be able to look back at an altar and say, this was the time and the place when I made this commitment. You'll look back and be able to say at that point of decision, well, no, I'm going to do this because I remember on Sunday with that missionary there, I stood up and I prayed to God and said, God, I want to do this. You need that in your life, those altars, those places you can look back at to anchor your faith. So that's why I'm asking you to do this. If you're willing today to pray that prayer and say, God, Help me to be sensitive to your leading, guiding, and direction. Help me to hear your voice and your call clearly. And Lord, more than just hear it, help me to do what you call me to do. If you're willing to pray that prayer, I'd just like you to stand up right now, wherever you're at, so we can pray together. Not going to take long, just stand up right now, wherever you're at, and we'll pray together as we close out the service. Lord, I just thank you so much for each one who's standing here today and saying, God, I want to be used by you. God, I, we know we don't deserve any of this. 
that it's not because of us that you use us, it's in spite of us that you use us, God, that you, you've chosen to use your strength through our weakness, God. It's nothing we've earned. We thank you so much. We're filled with gratitude for the grace and mercy you've shown us. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to not grab a hold of that in a way that we feel entitled to it, but to, to freely give it away as well. Lord, I, I just pray that you would make each one who's standing sensitive to your spirit, Lord, that you would pour your Holy Spirit fresh on them, Lord, make them sensitive to your leading and guiding and direction, help them to clearly hear your call on their lives, help them to he clearly hear your direction each day. And each day, Lord, I pray that you would help them to say, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll follow that, even though I don't understand it. Lord, and I pray that you would use them to touch this community, to touch this world for you, Lord, to build your kingdom. We thank you, Lord. We give you all the honor and praise and glory for it, Lord, for what you're going to do right here in this community, for what you're going to do around the world through their faithfulness. Praise you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.